lawsuits among believers. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thanks. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that all of it is breathed out by you and is profitable and useful and good for us. And so we receive this as the word from God, from you for us today. Please would we uh, be teachable. Please would we be humble. Please would we listen and learn and understand and believe and also do what your word says, that it may go well with us and that it may glorify you. Amen. The Jeremy Kyle show was a... um, was a popular show on TV. Mm. You guys might need to help me with the slides there. That's not going for some reason. Um, on daytime TV from t- 2005 to 2019. Uh, if you were a student in this time, you'll be very familiar with it, I'm sure. Um, the, the idea is this. The concept is this. People, uh, you get people in front of a live TV audience in a TV studio to try to resolve their biggest most profound and most difficult problems and most personal problems in their lives. So it's problems to do with relationships and sex and and addictions and and other kinds of things. And really, to help people engage with those kind of problems and resolve issues like relational breakdown and adultery and unfaithfulness and bad communication and loss of trust in a healthy way, it is just about the worst idea ever. But for entertainment value, the British public absolutely loved it. One million people watched it daily. It was the most popular program in ITV's daytime schedule. That is until in 2019, someone committed suicide a week after being on the show. And the the show was pulled from the air. I think it's mad that we live in a society that thought that was okay. That actually even thought that was a good thing. It's absolutely toxic. 
That was not a helpful context for issues and struggles that people had deep in their personal lives to be worked out and resolved. Now, there was a similar thing going on in Corinth that Paul became aware of and was concerned about. People in the church were airing their dirty laundry of the difficulties that they had in church relationships in public. And, uh, and it is a little bit different to, uh, you know, back then they didn't have Jeremy Carr, they didn't even have TV, uh, so it was a little bit of a different culture. But in the culture of the day of Corinth, it was fairly common for people to go to court to sort out their issues. I mean, the, the Greeks are kind of famous for loving a good argument and a good debate, and, and then that's what they did. And, and so the courts actually became a little bit like the entertainment of the day. It's equivalent of tuning into to Jeremy, um, Jeremy Carl in your PJs. Uh, people would head down to the public gallery of the court to watch people fighting out with their differences in, in, in the court and argue over their personal disputes. Now, now, the big problem is that they were being no different in the church. Again, the culture of, of the city around of Corinth had got into the church uh, but this time it's seen in how Christians are navigating their conflicts and their disputes and their interpersonal relationships with one another. This is the expression of the big problem in Corinth that we're seeing over and over again as we go through the series. The root of all the various different problems and the many, many different problems in the church. It's the world getting into the church. And things get really messy when that happens. Paul keeps spotting different areas of the church where he sees the world. He's like, look, there's worldliness here. Can you see it? And look, here's the influence of our modern city in your church. Do you understand what's going on here? And in this second main section of the letter that we're in at the moment, the focus, as we saw last week with George, is on sexual ethics and relationships and, and how the, the way that the world approaches these things are, are, are infecting the church. And we will return to that next week because it's the main focus. But this week's a little bit of a diversion from that in the middle. What Paul was doing is, as last week we saw, he was addressing this issue of incest in the church in chapter 5, this blatant sexual immorality. The big issue he has, not only with what's going on, but it's that the church are not doing anything about it. It's going unchallenged in the church. And so that leads him to reflect more on the fact that the church is abdicating its responsibility. It's refusing to make judgments on issues that it ought to be making judgments on, including interpersonal conflict between church members. And what's happening is because the church isn't dealing with that, it's kind of spreading out from the church and it's going into the public sphere and into the courts and, and Christians are taking their dirty laundry and airing it out there. That's what's going on in chapter 6, in very public places. Now, I'm aware that I... I don't think this is a massive problem at the Gate Church. I'm not aware that we're all suing one another right now. I mean, you might be about me knowing, but I, I, I don't think that's the case. But listen, the challenges are the same for us. For Stark, when George said it last week, the problem with the Gate Church is that there was too much of the world in the church. He's absolutely right. And so really, the question is today, are we a divided kingdom or are we a united kingdom? You see, there's this central idea that shapes so much of this letter, and it's the reality that God has set his church apart as a holy people. It was right there in the very beginning of the letter. A distinct people in the world who belong to the kingdom of God, and yet we still currently live in the kingdoms of this world. 
And, and this letter is helping us answer the question, well, how does that work out in practice for us? What does it look like for us in practice to be a holy people in an unholy city? It's a letter that's written into the mess and the complexity and the tensions around that intersection. Yeah, we're people of the kingdom of God, but yeah, we're also people who are in the world and in the kingdoms of the world. It can be quite confusing for us as Christians, can't it? And this letter helps us navigate those tensions and the challenges of that as we try to work out how we can be holy and distinct as God has made us to be, as in fact we are. Now, really, there's one, one basic point in, in this sermon today, and, and it is this. The, the basic point of the passage is pretty clear, is that we are to learn to resolve our disputes within the church wherever possible. Learn to resolve your disputes within the church wherever possible. We don't totally know what the dispute that Paul is referring to, uh, as he writes here, is. So we probably don't need to know. It's possible that the case of incest last week has actually ended up in, in the courts. But the bigger issue is this, that it is not an isolated incident. The church has become just like the wider culture and is very focused on upholding and enforcing their rights. And it's now relatively commonplace for brothers and sisters in the church to be fighting it out in court. And Paul is not impressed. The Lord's people are not to sort out their disputes um, in, in the courts, but are tried to do so in the church. And he's pretty strong on it. Do you, do you see some of the, the words that he uses just tracking through uh, the verses we read? How dare you, he says. Do you not know? Which is just a really strong thing to say in the language he's writing in. He says, I say this to shame you. You've been completely defeated already. It's clearly not a small deal for him. Now listen, it's not, it's not about whether or not we have issues within the church. Most certainly do and most certainly will. It's about how we work them out. I mean, Paul doesn't actually see disputes as inevitable. He starts it out by saying, if any of you has a dispute with another. But where we do have disputes, where we, how we handle them and how we resolve them is of great significance and importance. And, and the problem in Corinth, as with most of the issues in the letter, it's one of excess. It's one of excess. He's trying to curb this overly zealous kind of approach to litigation and, and going, to, going to the courts. Now, I want us to consider briefly what the disputes are and also what they're not. And then we're going to see a load of reasons why Paul says we're to try and resolve them in the church where possible. Now, now verse 5 tells us what these disputes are. They are disputes between believers. So these are conflicts between fellow Christians in the church that are most likely of a personal nature. Now, they're, they're relatively serious. They're serious enough that you could go to court if you needed to, but they're, they're not all that serious in the grand scheme of things. Paul refers to them as trivial cases, after all. So they're probably not overly complex. They're probably civil disputes between members of the church over things like money. So let's just say a, a friend in church is a plumber. You get him in to do some work in your house, and he, he does some plumbing, but you're not really happy with the quality of the work he's done, so you withhold payment from him, and you get into a dispute. It might be something like that. Or, or say you lend your friend in gospel family your, your prized possession, your really, really nice SLR camera, and it returns broken. It's going to cost many hundreds to fix, but they're unwilling to pay for it or to repair a new one. 
or, or, or pay, for, pay for a new one or, or, or repair it. It's the sort of thing that you could legitimately lawyer up over, but Paul's saying you don't really need to. The problem is these kinds of disputes are getting escalated into the public courts and causing all sorts of issues in and around the church. It could well be that it's one way that the wealthy are throwing their weight around and taking advantage of the poor, as often happens in, in, in courts and legal systems. Now, James, elsewhere in the Bible, tells us very clearly in his letter to Christians where disputes of this kind come from. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. These disputes in Corinth are the fallout of misfiring desires in the hearts of Christians that inevitably bring us into moments of conflict with one another when we live closely together in church. That is what this is. What Paul is not referring to, and it's important for us to understand and hear this, he's not referring to criminal cases. He's not referring to what you might call church scandal cases. We should be legitimately concerned if Paul's teaching here is ever used by Christians or by church leaders or, or by organizations to avoid criminal liability or to justify cover-ups or to enforce institutional silence in any way or protect leaders when serious allegations of abuse are made against them. Let's be crystal clear, that is a complete misapplication of this text. We have to understand this teaching in light of the plain and clear teaching elsewhere of Scripture around these things from both Jesus and Paul. Teachings such as we are to submit to the governing authorities and give them what they are due. That God has set governing authorities in place for our goods and it is their role to set laws. It is their role to punish wrongdoing, including criminal behavior. Paul himself actually appealed to the secular authorities uh, when he needed to, to, in, to, to protect and uphold his rights as a Roman citizen. So listen, the church is to submit to and to comply with the authorities God has placed over us. In areas that are their responsibility, we don't avoid accountability. And we benefit from their protection when we do so. If there's ever an issue of criminal behavior, if there's ever a legal duty to report something to the authorities, that should always be done. It shouldn't be dealt with solely in the church. And if a church or if Christians need to be held to account by criminal standards of the society in which we're in, then they should be held to account by those. There may be some very limited exceptions in some contexts where that doesn't apply, but it is very, very rare. I think it's very unlikely in our context. That's the simple point. Where possible, deal with your disputes within the church. Don't sue each other. It's quite easy, guys. <laughs> Don't sue each other. Let's see if we can do this one. Um, Paul gives us six reasons. Why? Here's our, here's our because. Uh, and this is the rest of the sermon, just working through these, these six reasons. First one is this. Disputes between Christians should not be taken before the ungodly, those who have no standing in the church. Let me read verses 1 and 4. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? 
and verse 4. If you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Or another way of rewriting that, that verse 4 is those who have no standing in the church. There's a big contrast, as I've said, through this whole letter that is really key in this section. It's between the godly and the ungodly, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and when the Lord's people, the righteous, the godly, are in conflict, why would we think that the ungodly, those whose way of life they've scorned in the church, who have no standing and no inheritance in God's kingdom, are best equipped to resolve that? Rather, these issues are to be brought before the Lord's people, the people of God's kingdom. Now, the focus here is not on points of law or disputes that need technical legal expertise according to the law of the time and place, because sometimes that is the case, and that is needed. But what's needed in these situations is basically moral judgments about interpersonal conflicts. What is needed is wisdom, is reconciliation, is restoration within the family of God. Do you see the emphasis here on brother and sister language? We've already seen in in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this far more than anywhere else. Disputes within the family are to be worked out within the family where possible. I remember when uh, I was was, uh, at Grace Church, a church I was at previously and, and, and part of the leadership team there. We had a dispute as a church with some builders who had done some work on the church building. And once the issues had been identified and understood, and there were a few emails and phone calls and things backwards and forwards, we got together as brothers in Christ to talk about it in a meeting and to talk through the issues. And we negotiated a peaceful resolution that was broadly fair to all. It's the sort of thing that could so easily have landed up in the courts and it would have benefited nobody. But we managed to come around the table as brothers in Christ and work it out. That's the first one. Dispute should not be taken before the ungodly who have no standing in the church. The second one is this. Paul says in verses 2 to 3, the Lord's people in the church are competent to judge. It's not just that the ungodly are not well equipped to pass judgment on certain matters, but the Lord's people are well equipped to judge them. Now listen, Paul's reasons for this are remarkable. He asks us in verse 2, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Most of us think, well, no, not really. It continues in verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? To which we think, definitely not. No. But apparently we will. It's an important thread that runs through the Bible of God's plans and purposes for humans in his world. We are to be what's called vice regents. Those who rule under and for God in his world. Bringing his goodness and his life and his blessing to the whole world. And so that finds its culmination in judgment, Paul says, um, in the time of judgment when God's renewing all things, that God's people, his church, will have a place in that. And in passing some kind of judgment in that and and ruling and reigning under and with him. Now, 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 whatever his evidence is for that, and we could do a Bible study looking into that, but we're not going to now. As those who will one day have a role in the judgment of the whole world, and indeed even of angels... Are we not more than competent enough to judge these things in this life? These trivial cases, he says. Now, you might think, aha, Johnny, but doesn't Jesus say, do not judge? Doesn't he say that? Well, yes, he does. Why is Paul now trying to get us to pass judgment when Jesus says, do not judge? Well, listen, what Jesus means when he says that 
is don't be judgy. Don't be a self-righteous, um, yeah, um, who is always critical of others. Fill in the blanks. What Jesus does not mean is, do, is, is, is don't be morally discerning. Don't make assessment of matters that are as important to make assessment over. In fact, last week we saw in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul was very, very clear. The church must be more involved in judging and sorting out its own issues. We're not to judge those outside the church, he says, but we are to judge those inside the church. See, judgment starts with the household of God. The Lord's people are to judge ourselves now and the world at the end of the days. It is to our shame, it is to our shame in the church in the UK, we've got a reputation for the complete opposite. We are perceived as being judges of anyone and everyone outside, very, very judgy, whilst we turn a blind eye to our own faults and our own sins and our own failings. The Lord would have it the complete opposite way. That's number two. We are, competent, we are competent to judge. Number three is this. The Lord's people in the church are wise to judge. Let's look at verse five. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? To which the answer is no. There are people wise enough is the point he's making. There are at least some in the church who are wise enough to help resolve these disputes between believers. Believers, see these disputes, as I've said, are not around technical legal issues or, or complex, complex questions of law where you might need a trained and qualified uh, person who's, who's got the experience to assess and resolve it. If that's the case, and if you've got that kind of dispute, it could be entirely appropriate to take it to the, the, the courts or to the legal structure that is there to, to help bring resolution. But these disputes are relational conflicts that require prayerful consideration, wisdom, careful reflection. And careful assessment and inquiring and good judgment from those in the church. And there are some in church who are more than able to provide that in most cases. And you know what? Where something can't be resolved within a local church, say something came up in the gate church, that there just wasn't anyone who was wise enough to deal with it, then there are other local churches who can have a role in bringing wisdom and bringing discernment and making recommendations and giving advice into a situation to help resolve it. That might be appropriate. Say there was a, a dispute between a leader and a member that just we weren't able to resolve. It might be appropriate for other churches to come in and help us in that. And indeed, we saw that we've got a good heritage of that in, 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 in our church history in this country that's maybe been lost somewhat in recent years. We saw that a few weeks ago as we looked at some church planting stuff together. There, there, there is wisdom in the church for these things. Number four, his fourth reason is this. The church's public witness is compromised, verse 6. He, he can't believe it when he gets to verse 6. The Christians in church airing their dirty laundry before unbelievers in public. He's concerned with our witness here and the negative impact on a watching world of inappropriate behavior in church, much like the case of incest, just being out there for all to see. Many personal fallouts and disputes do not need and do not benefit from the oxygen of public exposure and the spotlight. They are often best 
worked through and, and resolved in, 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 in personal contexts with a minimum number of people necessary to be involved. We don't need to take it to Jeremy Kyle. That is often what is the most helpful thing for recovering peace and unity. Very often, it doesn't even need to go to the whole church. It can just be a few people from within the church working through things. Now, that does not mean, again, we just need to see what he isn't saying. That does not mean verse 6 can be used to justify institutional cover-up of abuse or, or financial mismanagement or, or any other criminal or significant moral, immoral behavior of leaders. It does not mean the church can use this as a PR or face-saving exercise when we've got stuff wrong. The church must deal seriously with its issues. And sometimes that is at the cost of its reputation in society. And actually, if we're willing to take that cross, it's actually often part of our public witness. But it does not mean that every single issue has to be broadcast from the rooftops. That's not humility. That's not wise. How can we be a shining light if we're just always at each other and always suing each other and always falling out? And that's all the world sees. Fifthly, the way of Christ is to be wronged, not to wrong. If it comes to it, which it might do more often than we would like to think or realize, is it not better as a Christian to be wronged? And to be cheated, rather than doing the wronging and the cheating. Especially to your brothers and sisters in the church. You know, when, when you go to court, you nearly always are trying to win at someone else's expense. You're seeking vindication and, and you're, you're trying to enforce your rights in some way. And, and, and in many cases, also, you're trying to get money or a social reward. Listen, that's not wrong per se. Sometimes that's absolutely the right thing to do. But, but that's not generally the right attitude that we're to have in the church to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Why not take the hit rather than tear apart the body of Christ? Why not wrong be wronged and cheated? Why not be countercultural and kingdom-minded by not enforcing your rights when you legitimately could? Now, we've got to be wise in how we apply this. And you could be thinking of all the situations where it's like, yeah, Johnny, but that's not a situation in which we... And I'm sure, I'm sure that's probably right. But I'm sure there's also many situations where this would really painfully apply for us. It makes us bristle, doesn't it? What you mean, not, not, not enforce and stand up for my rights at all costs? But yes, I think that's what this means. And Paul sees it as so serious that he, he writes to them that these lawsuits, he says, look, you've been completely defeated already. You're completely defeated. Because you, you, you end up fighting it out in court, trying to win and trying to, to get a result. But the fact is, it's a lose-lose for peace and for unity. And whoever wins the case, you've really lost. But the family of God rarely wins when Christians are in heated dispute. How could it be this way in the church of Christ? The one who taught us to turn the other cheek. The one who didn't argue with his false accusers on the way to the cross, but stood before them silently. The one who let himself be betrayed and rejected and cheated as he chose to walk to the cross to die. And the one who through it all entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
That is the way of Christ, and that is the way of the people of Christ. The way of Christ is to be wronged and not to wrong. And finally, we are a renewed people of the kingdom. In verse 9, Paul writes, do you not know? He has a, a really important thing he wants them and us to realize. He says this, wrongdoers. Or you could interpret that, the unrighteous or the unjust. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whereas those who have come to Christ, who have been rescued from those things, will inherit the kingdom of God. See, this is who we are. We are renewed people of righteousness and justice. And this is what we do. We take hold of and we possess the kingdom of God. It's ours. And so as a renewed people of the kingdom, we work for peace and unity. Paul gives this list of the examples of, of wrongdoing in verses 9 to 10. It's very similar to the, the list that, that George took us through last week in chapter 5, verse 11. These are examples of unrighteousness, of, of wrongdoing, unrighteous living that are common in and around Corinth. The kind of living that's symptomatic of life outside the kingdom of God. Uh, and listen, in this list are some ways that we, um, some ways of living that we accept in our society today and some ways that we don't. But it ought not be too controversial to us because they're all clearly denounced multiple times in Scripture and throughout Scripture. It is worth noting brief, briefly that probably the most uh, controversial for us in this list is, is the specific reference to homosexual sex as not being aligned with life in the kingdom of God. Now, it's mentioned there alongside heterosexual, sexual immorality of various kinds, including adultery, just at the same level. And obviously, that is a belief and, and that is a standpoint that is not acceptable to believe in our society. But it is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. And it is consistent with the teaching of the church all the way through history and all the way across the world. So listen, I'm not going to say much more about that. But if you've got questions about that, you'd like to discuss that, please come and speak to me or one of the elders or your gospel family leaders and, and we can discuss that more. But it's not the main point here. It's just one example of in, in kind of a 10-point list of, of, of wrongdoing and worldliness. What is key with this list of examples is that this wrongdoing is a present and active reality. It is a deliberate thing that people are doing and continuing to do. It is a pattern of life that's engaged in and committed to and lived out. This wrongdoing is continued and ongoing, and, and it's people who are not turning away from, from or repenting in these things, but persisting in these things. And so they do not inherit the kingdom of God. Secondly, wrongdoing of this type and of these types and these kinds tears apart at relationships and the very fabric of community. They attack peace and unity in relationships. They're all interpersonal sins that, that so pull apart at people. And so the big thing is that it's those who as a course of their life are committed to living in these types of ways cannot and will not take hold of the kingdom of God. But that does not mean that any of us, for who these things have been a part of our life in some way, or continue to be a struggle within our life in the present, that does not mean we cannot possess the kingdom. 
In fact, that is exactly who gets the kingdom. Do you see it in verse 11? What does he say? That is exactly who some of you were. It is what you were, but it's not who you are anymore. That is no longer your identity. Uh, That is no longer the present, active, committed course of action of your life. You are no longer heading in that direction. So what happens? Why the big change and the radical difference? Well, listen, look at verse 11 with me. This is how it would have originally been read. I've lost it. Sorry, it's over the page, isn't it? That is what some of you were, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The emphasis on the contrast is huge. This word, but, is the strongest word that Paul has at his disposal to convey a massive contrast in something. And he repeats it three times. For some reason, they only wrote it once when they turned it into English. But, but, but. It's absolutely emphatic. The contrast is huge. You were once these things. You were once just the same as the world around you. No different. But you were forgiven and you were washed clean. But you were made holy and you were set apart for God's purposes. But you were made righteous by God. You were legally declared to be in the all clear. You were legally declared to be acceptable to him. All of these amazing things happen and come to us in one amazing moment. This transformation comes from us putting our trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving the spirit of God, Paul says. There's nothing else. There's never a way that that change happens. It's not by being good enough or getting churchy enough or, 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 or changing your life enough and, and cleaning yourself up. It's not by you wanting it bad enough or being clever enough or rich enough or being born in the right family or the right place or being nice enough or popular enough. It's nothing to do with that. It's all the change that Jesus brings into a person's life. The transformation like night and day, when someone comes and puts their faith in him. We were these things, but because of Jesus, we no longer are these things. We are something new. Later on, Paul's going to go and write to this church in Corinth. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old, what you were, has gone, and the new, what you now are, has come. And so that means that anyone can inherit. Anyone can take hold of and have the kingdom of God, whoever they are and whatever they've done. But only if and only by turning away from a lifestyle that is committed to their wrongdoing. Whatever that looks like for them, it looks different for all of us. Turning away from that and receiving by faith the gift of new life in Jesus. The only difference, the only difference between those who inherit the kingdom of God and those who don't is being washed, being sanctified, being justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who come and put their faith in Jesus, those who receive that gift, those of us who have done that today or have done that, who are here today who have done that, we are renewed people of the kingdom. 
And so the thing for us to do is to live like that is true because it is true. Live at peace. Realize that we have God's kingdom that is coming. And so let's be distinct, at least in one area, in how we resolve our disputes, not dividing God's kingdom unnecessarily. Because righteousness and justice is who we are, and it's what we do as the people of God. Let's pray, and then we'll we'll have some time to, to sing and pray further in response. Lord Jesus, you loved your people, you loved the church so much that you you died on the cross. Your, your body was torn apart. You took the, the, the weight of our sin and our division, our disunity and our hatred and, and our wrongdoing to make us one, to forgive us and cleanse us and, and set us apart as your people and to make us good with your Father. Forgive us, Lord, where we tear apart what you have put together. And help us, Lord, with great wisdom and great courage to stand for justice and righteousness and to to stand against evil and wrongdoing, even where we encounter it in the church. Especially when we encounter it in the church. But also help us, Lord, to zealously seek peace and unity and love and oneness. Lord, give us wisdom as we apply these things into our lives, into our situations, into our relationships with one another. Again, for our good and that you may be glorified. Amen.